thanks for helping us reach that goal. To The bottom line is we want to get into a facility that will help us reach more people for Christ. And it's a long-term goal most likely, but we're going to chip away at that mountain, all right? But this is really cool. and motivating West Coast Church to reach our goal for your namesake. We are deeply grateful. We don't deserve this grace, but thank you for it, Lord. Would you guide and lead us in this journey of searching for the right facility in the right time that you want us to go after? Would you give us patience in this process and give us wisdom in this process? And I pray that our motivation will not just so that we can sort of not have to do setup and takedown any longer, but rather we want to use, have a facility whereby we can see more worshipers uh, of you be drawn to you, become Christians, and become a part of your family, and then more people are glorifying your great name. That's what I pray our motivation would be. Lord, as we look at Psalm 94, we are reminded that you are you're a God of judgment, you're a God of vengeance, that we are all accountable to you on Judgment Day. So Lord, protect us from ourselves, protect us from boasting against you, protect us from harming the vulnerable, protect us from living unjustly. And Lord, would you keep us abiding and connecting with you? We want to abide with you that you would abide with us. Thank you for not forsaking us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for giving us rest in this life and in the life to come. We thank you for your helpful discipline, for consoling us, for holding us up in our times of trouble for being our eternal stronghold and our eternal rock and foundation in our rocky times in our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that every word I say would be from you and for you and your glory alone. In Christ's name, amen. Scott Larson to come up and read today's scripture. Psalm 94. O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when you, will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it.
Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Thank you, Scott. Today we're continuing our summer sermon series called Summer in the Psalms. And the psalm that we were looking at specifically today and hoping to absorb and take in and be changed by is Psalm number 94. And as you possibly noticed from that psalm as Scott read it, there's a lot of talk about vengeance and judgment and discipline, a reckoning with God, a reckoning with God. And interestingly, in recent months, you may have noticed a certain reckoning happening in our culture, a wider culture, and that is this reckoning called the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement. Have you heard of this thing called the Me Too movement? A few of you have. This is fascinating. And the Me Too movement really started to gain traction last fall in response to the multiple horrific allegations against film producer Harvey Weinstein, uh, who just this last week was finally arrested, charged with several uh, sex offenses, and released on bail. And the gravity and, and the shock of all the women who came out to tell their stories about Harvey, Harvey Weinstein led to what is now known as the Weinstein Effect. The Weinstein Effect, which is now a global trend uh, in which people come forward, most of which are women, to accuse famous and powerful men of, of sexual misconduct. And since the Weinstein effect has kicked in, well, countless additional men involved in the entertainment industry in particular, they have been accused of sexual misconduct. For example, we now have actor Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Senator Al Franken, celebrity chef Mario Batali. That really disappointed me because I was a, a Batali fan. Uh, Iron Chef, you may be aware of that TV show. I don't know if it's on anymore or not. But anyhow, most recently, we even heard about Morgan Freeman, and the jury's sort of still out on what's going on with Morgan Freeman. But, and it's possible that uh, some of the accused are falsely accused, all right? We get that. But really, there can be no doubt that a substantial amount of terrible things were going on that should not have been going on. Uh, a lot of vulnerable people, mostly women, were victimized by the powerful. For example, did you know that according to a 2017 poll taken by ABC News and the Washington Post, this poll discovered that uh, 54% of all American women have received unwanted and inappropriate sexual advances with 95% of the 54%, 95% of them saying that the behavior that they experienced from other people went unpunished. Most of their behavior went unpunished. This is a huge issue. And the Me Too movement has not only hit the entertainment industry, but it's also more recently beginning to affect mega churches, evangelical ones, kind of like ours, believe a lot of the same stuff and also Bible college seminaries. And what's happening even amongst these religious institutions, uh, men's uh, sexual sins are now be 
rising to the surface and becoming known, and these guys are now rightfully facing the music. There can be no doubt that a certain kind of reckoning or a certain kind of judgment day is happening in our culture right now with this Me Too movement. I mean, it's just alarming. There's discipline, there's accountability, there's judgment, and this is helping to expose how the powerful are taking advantage of the vulnerable. Here's my point. Psalm 94 is asking God for a Me Too-like sort of reckoning against those who are taking advantage of the vulnerable, where the strong are crushing the weak. God, act on our behalf. And so not only will you and I see today uh, this happening in that psalm, but it's easy just to point the finger at the strong over here, taking advantage of the vulnerable. But we need to turn that finger around and ask God to show in us or expose in us any of this sort of thing happening in our hearts as well. Now there's also, so the judgment isn't just for those who, the really bad guys, but we need to ask God to show these motivations that are dark and sinful if they're happening in ourselves. So there's that. So there's a discipline aspect of our passage, but there's also a very comforting aspect of this passage, a very hopeful and, and, and helpful side to it, to this psalm. And that's why the title for today's message is, God Will Not Forsake Us. God will not forsake us. And frankly, it's breathtaking in this psalm to not only see how God's going to fight for us, but he will take care of his people in the midst of very trying times in our lives. Is anyone not in a trying time or has never experienced a trying time in your life? We all have experienced trying times. So this is very good news, and we'll talk about that a little later. All right, let me give you the big picture view of this Psalm 94. And what this psalm is, it's a community lament for the people of God, and they are crying out to God for justice and for help. Help us, God. Now, why are they crying out for help from God? Because it appears that the wicked are not only oppressing God's people and beating down the vulnerable here, but the wicked are so full of themselves and so filled with pride that they're actually bragging about how they're taking advantage of the weak. Can you imagine doing that? Bragging about taking advantage of the weak. And they're bragging, they're sort of being boastful about these sins before God. I mean, it's that messed up. They think God is not noticing what they're doing. And so in response to all this injustice, the writer of this psalm, he's lamenting before God on behalf of God's people, crying out, God, take action against these guys. But here's the thing. In addition to this psalm of lament being all about asking God for justice, take vengeance against the wicked, it's also about the need for God's people in the midst of this hardship Remember God's love. Remember his care. Remember his concern for you. Uh, to remember, God will help you endure very trying times. So there's the overview. Let's drill down now on verses 1 through 11. If you have it in front of you in some way, shape, or form, that's helpful. You can see where I'm kind of going, that I'm not getting these ideas for myself. Uh, so verses 1 through 11, here's what we see. The first thing you need to know, as we've noticed, this psalm, the first section, very negative kind of dark. And it's negative because the writer of the psalm, he's asking God to take vengeance against the leaders in the nation. So what's happening is it sounds like the political powers of the nation of Israel at the time 
are, the real, are really the, 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 the bad guys. These are the guys taking advantage of God's people. They're doing damage against their own people. How horrible. And he's asking God, bring about a Me Too-like reckoning against these guys. The psalm writer, by the way, he's doing exactly what he should. And I'll explain this. He is not taking vengeance into his own hands. He's not going out and buying a sword and just going after the political powers that be that are taking advantage of people. No, he's rather taking it to prayer, taking the vengeance to prayer and asking God to take vengeance. And this is what he should be doing, and it's actually what you should be doing as well. When people wrong you, you don't take vengeance. You ask God to take vengeance for you. And we see this also in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. That's God's voice speaking. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, repay, says the Lord. And, you know, frankly, when people do me wrong, what do I want to do? I want to get them back. Verbally, mentally. I just want to push back in some way, make it known that that's not, that's not okay for them to push back on me or do me wrong. So as much as I want to sinfully do that, I find this promise and this part of the psalm comforting that God will actually take vengeance on my behalf. I don't have to do that. That's good. Who better than God to take vengeance on my behalf? Who better than the, the inventor and the keeper of ultimate justice than God to take justice out for me? That's encouraging, isn't it? And that leads us to the first point in your notes. There is a sermon outlined in your bulletin if you want to follow along with that. Number one is simply this. Our God of vengeance will judge, wipe out, and discipline the proud, the wicked, and the evil because. So we'll look at three reasons down the road here as far as why God will judge the wicked and the evildoers. But I want us to first do a little brief doctrinal study on God being the judge of us. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. It says this about Jesus. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. It's talking about his second coming when, God, when Jesus will make things right and settle everything. Settle accounts, ultimate accounts. So a couple of things we see in this verse. First of all, on the final day of judgment, this is a day on the calendar that none of us knows what that date is. On that date in the future calendar, Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead. So every single person in human history from the beginning to the end will stand before Jesus on that day. Matthew Henry, he's a Puritan pastor from the 1700s. He says this about God being the judge. He is judge, supreme judge, judge alone from whom every man's judgment proceeds. He that gives law gives sentence upon every man according to his works by the rule of that law. We think about Canada. We have a, I think BC has a Supreme Court justice. Uh, Canada has a Supreme Court as well. These are ver- judges that are very high up. The Supreme Court of Canada is the highest level of justice and law in the land. But Jesus is the supreme, supreme judge. There's no one higher in terms of his judgment than Jesus Christ. Let me stop there for a second and say, when it comes to Thinking about Judgment Day and being accountable before God, there's a lot of people, Christian or not, that get very nervous about that day coming. 
very nervous, very stressed. But the good news is, if you're a Christian, a true Christian, if you are with Christ, you've repented of your sins, and you've said no to me running my own life, saying no to me trying to rule my own life according to my own set of self-appointed rules. No, I don't want that. That's not working for me. I'm repenting of that. I'm trusting in Jesus now to be my king and my Lord. I'm going to live life his way instead of my own. And then if you, are being, if you are baptized into Christ to show to the world that you are now following Jesus and Jesus is your king and you trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you've got nothing to fear on Judgment Day. Yes, there is another sort of judgment for Christians, and I won't get into that, a second judgment, but you are going to heaven. You've got nothing to fear if you are with Christ on Judgment Day. Your sins have been taken away from you. They've been placed at the cross of Christ. Jesus paid for those sins at his cross for you permanently, and he earned salvation for you permanently forevermore. You've got nothing to fear on Judgment Day. But if you are not in Christ, if you have not turned to him as your King, Lord, and Savior, your sins remain on you. Your sins remain on you, and you are therefore accountable for those sins before God. Look what 18th century Puritan pastor Richard Baxter says about this. And this is old English, but this is really solid stuff. He says this, When God hath shaken your careless soul out of your body, and you must answer for all your sins in your own name, oh then, what would you give for a Savior? What you would give for a Savior on that moment, on Judgment Day, if you are not a Christian, you're saying, I wish I would have turned to my Savior. I need a Savior, but now it's too late. So it's better to know that you need a Savior today than it is tomorrow when it's too late on Judgment Day. And so I urge you, simply this, come to Jesus. Turn to him as Savior. He is the one you need. He is the one, the only one who can save you on Judgment Day. He is the only one who can give you ease of mind and peace on Judgment Day because he's paid for all your sins. So come to him, repent of your sins, place your faith and trust in Jesus and in his life lived for you, his cross that he died for you on, and his resurrection, and be baptized. That's the hope that we have on Judgment Day, if you're a Christian. But back to the passage, here's the first reason why God will judge the world and judge the proud, the wicked, and the evil. And this is primarily... The people in view here in this psalm are the political leaders who are taking advantage of God's people. But there's also, so that wouldn't necessarily apply to hopefully anyone in this room, but it does apply to all of us in this, in this room because those motivations to take advantage of others are lurking, I think, within, there's potential, the potential for those sinful ideas and those motivations are lurking in all of us or can lurk in all of us. And so that's what we can learn from this passage. The first reason why God will judge the proud is, a little late in your notes, they arrogantly boast. They arrogantly boast and brag about themselves and how they're taking advantage of others. Verse 4 talks about these, these resistors of God are, are pouring out from their mouths these arrogant words, boast-filled words, bra- bragging about how I'm taking advantage of other people and bragging about my filthy deeds, bragging about myself. And the word picture that the writer gives us, and I want to share with you, is that of a stream or a river, a gushing of river. 
And the Hebrew word for pour out, I'm going to move this microphone down a little bit and see if that helps a little bit. The Hebrew word for, no, it's not working. The Hebrew word for pour out can also be translated as rushing. And it's clear that this is the picture that the writer has in his mind as he's writing this. And uh, this is like a full stream of water, like Niagara Falls is coming out of these guys' mouths. Words of self-exaltation, words of self-promotion, words about how much better I am than all these other people, how much better I am than even God. And it's this gushing of arrogant words is why God will judge them. Perhaps you, you know that person in your life, and there's a lot of gushing words out of their mouth, and these are words that are all about themselves, and these are self-promoting words. Very often, all they talk about is who? You know, you're limping, you're dying over here, and they say, hey, how's it going? Well, I did this, and I did that, and I'm doing great. How are you doing? And they cut you off as you try to tell them that you're really suffering over here. Do you know that person? Well, be encouraged that that person will be held to account for that kind of gushing of arrogance from their mouths. But what about you? Let's talk about our own stream of words. What kind of stream is gushing like Niagara Falls out of your mouth? Are you gushing out words that will build up and and help and encourage other people? Or are the words coming out of your mouth building up yourself and promoting self? Let us ask. God, Holy Spirit, examine our hearts. Point out in me what words of arrogance might be pouring out of my mouth and I'm not aware of it. Expose that in me and help me to change from it. Instead, may the words out of my mouth be encouraging and upbuilding of others, encouraging to my spouse, encouraging to my kids, helpful to my kids, words that show that you're listening. These are words of life. Is the, the, the water that's coming out of your mouth, is that living water that helps other th- people grow? Or is it polluted water that helps sort of shrink them back down again? Let us ask the Lord for that sort of examination and point this out in us. Let's move on to the second reason why God judges the wicked. Are you ready for this? It is because the wicked crush the vulnerable and God's people. Talked a little bit about this already, but we're going to drill down on this. They crush the vulnerable and God's people. And we see this, verses 5 and 6. These guys, you know what they're doing? Can you imagine? They're killing widows. They're killing the immigrants. They're murdering the orphans. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. And more than that, they're afflicting God's people. And this is God's heritage, meaning they're, a, they're God's family now. He has saved them and brought them to himself. They represent God in his glory, and they are being taken advantage of as well and beat, being beat down by these political leaders in the land. This is pretty bad. It's very bad. And it sounds like these, again, these political people are exploiting their, the weak. They're using their power to exploit the weak, kind of like how the powerful people in Hollywood are using their power to exploit vulnerable women and men, which the Me Too movement is exposing right now. It's just terrible. Kind of reminds me, you may have some knowledge of the history of Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany was, was just horrifically bad in every way. And what happened in Nazi Germany, the elderly were exterminated. The disabled were exterminated. The Jews were exterminated. And the Nazis, they used their 
great power to exploit the weak and to exploit God's people. And we might think, the church, well, we would never do that. Christians would never exploit the weak. The church and its leader, her leaders would never do that. But you know, sadly, every year, in fact, this last year, the last two years, seems like every week we're hearing about yet another church leader from a big church, you know, where it's being exposed that he took advantage of somebody in their own church. I mean, there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than that. And what you and I must do is never assume that we're not prone to these kinds of sins, church leader or not, church member as well. We must ask again, God, the Holy Spirit, eradicate, exterminate, get rid of any desire in me that would want to crush the vulnerable. Get rid of that in me. Anything in me that wants to take advantage of other people for my own purposes, anything in me that would want to harm anyone at all. Lord, kill these horrible desires in our hearts today. Change us. That was intense. Let us move on to the third and the final reason why God will judge the wicked. This is point little c in your notes, simply that they wrongly think that God is not watching. That's why God's going to judge them. They wrongly think God is not aware of what they're doing. We see this in verses 7 to 11. It sounds like these guys, they either don't believe God is aware, so he is somewhat What they're doing is hidden from God's sight, or it sounds like these guys could be just out-and-out atheists. They don't believe that God exists, and if God doesn't exist, then I don't have to be accountable to God. i got nothing to worry about here. No one to hold them to account for exploiting the weak, that's what they think. But the question is, is God not aware? Does God not know? Is God kept in the dark? as to their very dark, sinful actions? What's the answer? The answer is is no. God is fully aware. He is completely, totally aware. The psalmist says, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? In other words, all eyes and all ears in this room have been made by who? Been made by God. He invented your ears. He invented your eyes. So to assume that God does not have ears or does not have the ability to hear or does not have the ability to see is complete, utter nonsense. It's ludicrous. And and so knowing this truth and being reminded of this truth, it's helpful to you and to me and to us all, isn't it? That nothing you do, nothing you think about is beyond the knowledge of God. He knows all your thoughts right now. He knows all your motivations right now. He knows all of your actions that you've done this week and this day right now. He knows all and he sees all. All knowledge and wisdom belongs to him. Therefore, in knowing this and being reminded of this truth, let us all in this room be kept far away, be kept far away from ever exploiting the weak and thinking that we can get away with it. We can't. We can't get away with it. We will not get away with it. Therefore, let us not do anything close to that. Lord, keep us from anything near to that. Anything that would be in us that would want to exploit the weak for our purposes. Lord, save us from ourselves. Let's move on now. We're going to move on to the last half of this passage. We've now just looked at the first half, which was very negative, uh, but helpful. Now we're looking at the second half, and the second half is much more positive and much more encouraging, and it's really all about what God does for the person 
who is, being, who is under duress from the powerful, all right, from people who would exploit you. Now, here's the good part about what God does for you if that is you, if you are being exploited or persecuted or harmed in some way. And number two in your notes is simply this. The Lord will not, will not, will not forsake his people in the following ways. He will not forsake his people, and we'll look at a few ways here very shortly. This is very encouraging in and of itself. He will not forsake you in your time of trouble. Doesn't mean he, he will take away your time of trouble per se, but in the middle of your trouble, he will not forsake you nor leave you. That is good news. He will not turn his back on you right when you need him most. He will not. That's a great promise. He doesn't, he doesn't do that sort of thing. All right? God is not the kind of God that would leave you right when you need him most. This is very good news. And here's the first way that God will not forsake you in your notes, little a, simply with this, with helpful discipline. <laughs> with helpful discipline. You're thinking, I don't like discipline. I mean, this sounds really strange, that God will not forsake me by, because he will give us discipline. I mean, this is weird, but we get this from verse 12, which says, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. In other words, when you are being disciplined by the Lord, you in that moment are blessed. That's what we have to get our minds around. When you are being disciplined by God, you are being blessed. You are being helped. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says that the Lord disciplines who? Who does the Lord discipline in Hebrews 12, 6? Those whom he loves meaning his discipline in your life is actually proof, evidence that he cares about you, that you mean something to him. He wouldn't bother disciplining you if, if he didn't love you. And if you're a parent, some of you are parents in the room, you sort of get this idea, don't you? You lovingly and, and gently and carefully, you discipline your kids. Why? Why do you do that? Well, you, you, you want to help them stop a certain kind of behavior that might harm themselves or harm other, other people or cause problems down the road. You're trying to stop that sort of behavior. So loving discipline for your kids, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a very good thing, and, and so it is for us. And the psalmist recognizes that despite, despite all the terrible things that are happening to God's people in that moment by the wicked, the psalmist is recognizing that there's still something good that, I, that can be learned by this hardship. The good thing that can be learned from this hardship is that the Lord is allowing these hard and difficult and brutal things to happen to me. Why? To discipline me, to train me, to trust him more and love him more and rely on him more during this time of affliction and hardship. I want to ask you this. I know a lot of you, there's always somebody really going through tough times in our church at any given moment. It's usually multiple. And that's the case right now. And I won't name, ask you to name names or raise your hand. But in your current hardship right now, in your current trouble right now, instead of, asking, instead of only asking God to fight on your behalf, and, and that you should do, are you also using this hardship to grow your faith? Use it as a tool to grow more in Christ? Are you seeing it as part of God's helpful and blessed discipline to help you grow into Christ more and draw near to him more and trust him more? Are you using it in that way? 
So you should, and so I should. Here's the next way God will not forsake his people, not forsake you, his child. Little b in your notes, here it is. He will not forsake you in this way. He will give you rest from days of trouble. He will give you rest from days of trouble. Verse 13 talks about that if you have verse 13 in front of you. And either your rest will come in this life and or it will come in the next life, eternal life, new heavens, new earth, where everything will be made right and God will take you to be his own forevermore with his people. Hopefully both. Do we not want rest in this life as well? I think we need rest and respite at various times in this life as well from days of trouble that come our way. I've talked about this recently, about how I love my home. There are some annoying things about the build quality of my home, but I won't talk about that. I really, though, like my home, and the reason I like my home is because I get to do that. I get to rest, and you know what I like to do on occasion? Is to watch Blue Jays games. I'm a baseball fanatic, and it's an idol in my life, and pray for me. Uh, especially when they're losing. It's really poignant that this is an idol in my life because I get very upset about it. Um, but I really like to relax in my home, and I'm with my family in my home, and we get to eat together in our home. My home is a place where I get to take a breath. I get to have a nap once, once in a blue moon, and I get to exhale. My home is my place of refuge and my place of rest. And so much more is God your ultimate home today. He is your ultimate place of rest today, now. So therefore, turn to him in your trouble. Ask him, Lord, give me physical rest right now. I'm exhausted. Give me spiritual rest right now. I'm exhausted. Give me inner rest right now. Give me mental rest. Give me physical rest in my days of trouble. And I believe he will. It's not just ultimate, and certainly the ultimate rest is coming. But ask him for rest in your days of trouble today, now. And I believe that he will give that to you to give you more sanity in your life. There's another way God does not forsake us. Little C in your notes is this as we move on. By not abandoning us. By not abandoning us. Verse 12, sorry, verse 14 talks about how the Lord will not abandon his heritage, which is the word for heritage is code speak for family. All right? God will not abandon you because your family and family members don't abandon family members, or they should not. And through Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God forevermore through Jesus. That's good news. And it's been said that you finally discover who your friends are when. When do you discover who your friends really are? Sorry? That's right, during hard times, okay? During times of trouble in your life. Perhaps you've been falsely accused of something. I mean, isn't that terrible? Someone falsely accuses you of something. You're like, what, seriously? Or something happens to your health. All right, you find yourself in the hospital, car accident, whatever it is. Well, if you're one of these brutal situations, how do you know who your friends are? Your friends are the ones who show up to be with you. They don't abandon you. Rather, they're the ones who are there at your bedside in the hospital in your time of trouble. They're the one, ones calling you when they find out things are bad. They're, it's like it's a wonderful life at the end. I mean, he's in trouble, if you've seen that film, Jimmy Stewart. And the whole town comes out, just pours out love because of all the self-sacrifice that he's given to them. He discovered he has a lot of friends 
who, those are true friends. They don't abandon you when you need them most. And in the same way, in a much greater way, you can know with full assurance that if you are in Christ and with Christ, he will never, ever abandon you or leave you on your own or forsake you. No matter what, he will be with you always. Jesus is not, he is not, he is not a fair-weather friend. He is the ultimate friend. He is the ultimate friend that you need and I need because we all go through hard times. So keep trusting in him. He is for you. He is not against you if you are in Christ. Let's move on to little D in your notes. This is another way that God proves that he does not forsake us. D is simply this, by holding us up when we're about to slip. By holding us up when we're about to slip. Verse 18 says, I thought my foot was slipping, but in your steadfast love, Lord, you held me up. Isn't this good stuff? By the way, if you're slipping, here's what slipping means. If you are slipping, you are being removed from a position of security. You're being removed from a position of security. This last week, you may have heard the news story about in France, that little child who was literally hanging from a precipice on a building. And what happens, uh, this child, thanks be to God, was saved by an immigrant from Mali named Mamadou Gassama. Mamadou Gassama. And this video just went viral globally this last week. Did anyone see this video, by the way? A few of you saw this video? And just breathtaking. And it, it was a great story. This, this poor child was literally slipping off that precipice, but Gassama rescued, ran, rushed to save the child, grabbed hold of the child, and rescued that child from certain death. And as a result, Gassama was offered French citizenship and also offered a job. This is a great story, a great ending, isn't it? Nice to have some good news once in a while. And this is what the Lord does for you. I want you to imagine that that's you on that precipice in place of that child. And you're about to slip, and you're about to fall, and everything in your life feels insecure and unstable and unjust. And in that moment, you need to believe and trust in the Lord that he will hold you up. He will give you the support you need. He will watch over you. He will protect you to rescue you from you before you slip. And this is very good news. This is the kind of God that we have. This is the kind of God that we follow. He is for us. He is not against us. He will not forsake us. Now, quickly, for the sake of time, because I've gone a little long, I want to give you two final ways from this passage that the Lord does not forsake us. Little e in your notes is simply this, by consoling and cheering our souls. Consoling and cheering our souls like a mother. I mean, a mother of a newborn baby, it's all about consoling a crying infant. Well, that's how God, our Heavenly Father, consoles us and cheers our souls when we are crying spiritually. He will console us and he will comfort us. That's how good he is. And lastly is little f in your notes. This is how God does not forsake us. He does not forsake us by being our eternal stronghold, our rock, and our refuge. In other words, the rock is your solid rock. Sorry, the Lord is your solid rock. He is your foundation that gives the house of your life strength and stability and firmness. And so when the storm comes, and the storms will, there will be multiple storms blowing viciously against the house of your life. When that storm comes, 
your, the house of your life is, it's okay. Just fine. Why? Because your life is built upon the person, and the person's name is Jesus. Jesus is your rock. Jesus is the all-powerful one. There's no limit to his strength. There's no limit to his ability. There's no one who loves you more than Jesus Christ. And as your rock, your life is as stable, if not more stable, than the home is in that picture that is built upon the rock. He is your rock, and he is the one whom you can and should trust in in the middle of your storm. Let's pray together as we bring it to a close. Lord, thank you. You are so good to us. You are so good to us. You give us so much that we are often blind to. And I forget how great and how good and how loving and consoling and encouraging and helpful you are. Forgive me for forgetting. Help us to see all of these good benefits that you provide to us going through difficult times, especially to those who are being taken advantage of by the powerful. Lord, would you prevent any of us in this room from ever exploiting the weak, from ever using others for our own benefit, from ever taking advantage of others. Protect us from ourselves, and we know that we are, not, uh, that we are prone to those desires and, and feeding those desires in, our, in the remaining sin that still exists in our hearts. So we ask you to crucify those desires in us today and right here, right now. And instead, may we be people that follow in your footsteps, Lord Jesus, live lives of self-sacrifice to help and love others. We would have nothing, Lord. We would have no shelter. We would have no rock stability in our lives. We would have no hope in our lives without the gospel, without you, Jesus, coming to live our lives for us in our place perfectly because we could not live perfect lives. You did that for us. We would have nothing without you, Jesus, coming to die on the cross for our sins and take upon yourself the death penalty and the judgment of God for our sins. You did that willingly out of love for us, and we give you glory and praise for that. We would have nothing without you, Jesus, rising from the dead three days later to prove your ultimate victory over Satan, sin, and death forevermore. We are grateful. And so we love you. We praise you. We worship you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the ultimate expression of self-sacrificial love the universe has ever seen. And that love is for us. We don't deserve that. But man alive, we are grateful. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.